Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino's Security Confidential. I'm your host, Manoj Tandon, and today we are honored to have as our guest Charles Herring from WITFU. Um, we're really looking forward to this conversation. Charles has a, a great past uh, and a lot of experience in InfoSec. Charles's dedication to maturing the craft of InfoSec is built on a diverse career path across the industry. He started his career in InfoSec in the U.S. Navy back in 2002, uh, as serving as the network security officer at the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School. He was a contributing product reviewer for InfoWorld magazine, spent seven years running Hearing Consulting, a company dedicated to process orchestration. Uh, he uh, dedicated um, his career to process or orchestration and, and did a lot of work with veterans, law enforcement, government officials, and uh, used that experience and his learnings that led to the formation of WITFU, uh, which is uh, Charles's organization at this point in time. And uh, we're honored to have you, Charles. Oh, good. Thanks out. for having me. I appreciate Glad to be here. Happy to spend the time with you. Oh, I, I'm glad that you're here as well. Uh, and another little bit, we're going to talk about information security, but we're also going to talk about diving because we haven't had a diver on this, a real diver on this show. So <laughs> we've had yoga coaches, we've had laughter coaches, we've had uh, security architects, a uh, lot of CISOs, but you're the first diver. So I'm pretty good at it. All, my, the number of ascents match my number of descents, which tell you, tells you I'm pretty good. That's wow always equal those out. Excellent. Excellent. So, you know, Ch Ch Charles, let's start this discussion off with the beginning. I, you know, we are always very curious and our listeners are really curious about how people got their start in cybersecurity. And it's, this is for us a two-part question. We, we'd like to understand how you got started, but also uh, your transition from the military to civilian life. That's a topic that uh, we get a lot of questions on uh, and we would love to get, as a veteran, uh, we'd love to get your uh, insights uh, on that and perhaps help other veterans become very successful. Well, yeah, that's a great question. You know, it was really stressful for me coming out of the military. You have a lot of great stuff, uh, great support system. You have a focused mission. You have leaders that have grown up uh, being taught regularly how to be better leaders. Uh, you have a set of core values and you have uh, a team uh, around you that cares about all aspects of your life, making sure you're good at work, safe at work, taking care of you, willing to uh, put in with you, right? They're, they're willing to own, own each other, right? Right. And so, you know, sort of leaving that coming into uh, the corporate world is a whole different animal that we are... Um, that support structure is gone. Uh, we, we tend to live uh, in this dichotomy of work life and, uh, and home life. And so we sort of have these casual relationships with our coworkers instead of having uh, more connected, deeper relationships that we've shared with our, um, uh, with our fellow servicemen when we're in the service. And so, you know, it was a little hard for me. The first thing is just trying to figure out how to get the support system in place because, you know, who do I talk to? Where do I go? Um, who can commiserate with me? Um, where can I bounce ideas off of? Uh, how do I get better? Because one of the great things that virtually all veterans have uh, from the experience is adaptability. The ability to understand the new theater they're in and adapt to it. Um, but it's challenging without the support system. It's just frankly terrifying. And so first thing was just getting involved in some veteran organizations like the American Legion and VFW to have some veterans to bounce ideas off of and, um, and have that level of support, right? Uh, on the personal level, you have to be grounded there when you come home and right. have some help. Um, and then really the adaptability is a whole different, the, the way organizations tend to run in general are uh, loose missions, right? So the mission can change, the interpretation of the missions can change. Uh, values, if they're defined, aren't necessarily widely adopted in the organization. So being patient is another thing we learn in the service. We stand a lot of watch. And so staring, waiting uh, is something we really have to lean into because things don't happen very fast. And there's a lot of uh, politics. So relearning how to interact with people that are um, not so in lockstep 
it was a big challenge, right? So talking to, to other veterans that have been through that, just on the small details, like I'm having a problem with so-and-so at work, I think they hate me, you know, am I doing this wrong? Am I being too, am I pushing too hard? So I think a lot of it's just inter, interpersonal skills and, you know, going through the hiring process is tough because us veterans are, we want to go charge the hill. We want to solve the problem. And sometimes corporations don't want to run that fast or there's emotions and politics and things that we're generally not accustomed to. But yeah, definitely having uh, your new command. You know, we PCS or uh, do a permanent change of station inside the military when we're active duty and sort of ha realizing that you are PCSing into a new command. This is outside of the military. We need to get the support structure set up. But I will say in cybersecurity, it's every problem you have in general in transition is worse in cybersecurity because it's an immature craft. We have problems defining what the real outcome should be or what a good, you know, we can't agree on that. We have problems communicating amongst ourselves inside of uh, the different parts of cybersecurity. We have a huge problem communicating with the rest of the business uh, in the terms. So it can be a very, it's a very frustrating craft to be in in general. And so learning how to, be useful and patient and helping navigate what's currently an immature craft and helping it mature is daunting. But, you know, fortunately, you know, most of my team are, they're veterans and they're fantastic. They're adaptable. They're able to change. And you know, when I talk to employers that, that don't get it, that are having struggles and understanding the value in a veteran, um, just, just give them, give them some room, let them, let him or, or her run with it. Give them the ability to, to make some transformation. They'll deliver it. And, uh, organizations that want to change do that. And I think it's also important for veterans to, to connect and network with each other, um, about which companies are mission focused that do have a culture that's around values. And you don't want to jump off into some doggy dog, um, kind of uh, scenario. Uh, right out the bat, uh, right out the uh, right out the gate. So, the yeah, main things for me is make sure you get a support group up. You know, we have the same problems. We do uh, often when we leave the military. We often go back to our hometowns where there's not necessarily a base. There's not the uh, infrastructure. And so, finding uh, finding like-minded um, uh, servicemen, vet veterans, is is a huge help just to bounce ideas off of. And we do help each other. Um, but yeah, support system is probably the most important piece because there is going to be change. It's different than, uh, than any other uh, change of command that we've had before that. So, you know, what uh, Charles is a little surprising to me is always that, uh, there's nothing in military operations that's static, especially those who have served on the front line in the field. The situation is continually evolving. It's changing. You have to adapt in the, and make decisions on a split second notice. I would think coming into the civilian world it would be a heck of a lot easier. I mean, those decisions that are being made in field operations are very difficult decisions. Uh, on the civilian side of things, I, I would think it would be easy as pie. Uh, well, so most of the things we're doing in military are very uh, empirical, concrete objectives, things you can see, things you can interact with. You know, they're gonna be dangerous or volatile and the consequences are challenging. So they're empirical in the field generally. And uh, the second thing is we have well-defined uh, rules and operations that we, we know how we're going to do work. You know, when I enlisted in the Navy, my craft was, uh, I was an aviation electronics technician. I fixed the, fixed the weapons and uh, electronic systems on Hornets, on F-18s. And I thought that I was gonna go in and it was me, my big brain against uh, this, uh, you know, billion dollar aircraft and troubleshooting it. But after I get through training, I find out, you know, I push a button in the wheel well, a maintenance code comes out. I take look that maintenance code up in a, uh, in a publication and I work a flow chart, you know, work it through. And then when I'm done, the plane's fixed and QA happens and we uh, test the aircraft and, and turn it back around. And so even though very expensive, very complicated, uh, you know, a lot of times doing that on a flight deck and, you know, um, in the Persian Gulf or somewhere else, it's those things are empirically uh, more dangerous and stressful. Um, but the, the structure, how we do things, what's acceptable, the steps we're going to take, how we're going to QA it, there's so much structure. And when, when I, after 9-11, when I was detailed to the Naval Postgraduate School to spin up the network security group, that was my big, to, you know, aha moment 
that not everything is that way because it was, you know, just after 9-11, about 20 years ago now, and I'm, the command has figured out how to do cybersecurity. Uh, this, and there's no publications. There were no flow charts. There was no training. There was no professional development. And it really was whatever I thought was right was right. And it was, it was, dis, it was disorienting. So there was no um, playbook for it, which, right. and for what you're describing is that there is a playbook on an F-18, but cyber, we know, even when we, we have playbooks uh, on security orchestration, uh, but they don't, they evolve on situation to situation. I think we're going to get into that a little bit, but before we get it, get there, I guess another point along this is, do you have any message for employers that might have uh, a, a bias or I should say any kind of difficulty in considering a veteran for a, for a position in their organization. In general, when, especially in cybersecurity, we need diversity, particularly occupational diversity. A lot of the problems we have in the craft is because we're doing the same thing the same way over and over again, and nothing's getting better, right? We were just sort of resigned to the fact that things are going to get worse and worse, which is uh, ridiculous. And one of the most important pools of occupational diversity are military veterans. They're adaptable. They understand outcomes. They understand the investigative mindset, the troubleshooting and investigative mindset of solving problems and understanding rules of engagement and those types of things. Um, so what I would say is if an organization wants to get healthy, they need to onboard people that have the ability to solve for the outcomes of cybersecurity, uh, healthy cybersecurity outcomes. Um, and veterans are going to be in that mix. I don't think it's possible to build out a security practice that is going to do, um, have the outcomes of creating deterrence uh, against cyber criminals, securing the network, uh, meeting uh, risk requirements. Uh, you can't do those things without the adaptability that can only come from folks that have been in these empirically challenging situations and have uh, learned how to engineer around it, how to solve for that. Um, so I would say first, align your outcome to wanting success. And then as soon as you do that, you're going to realize you can't possibly deliver that without the occupational diversity that comes uh, with uh, military veterans. I think that's an excellent point, And I hope people listening take uh, good note of that. But now getting back to the playbook, uh, so you started off in the Navy uh, and getting into cybersecurity and there was no playbook. So, <laughs> and you're right. I, I mean, even today, uh, you know, people think that there's uh, very finite steps, one, two, and three, and not everybody can agree on what those steps should be or how they should be done or how they should be communicated. Uh, everything you stated is correct. But when you when you kicked this off in the Navy, I take it this was in its infancy, the entire program. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The the challenge, you know, most of my life, the last 20 years, has been about studying the craft of cybersecurity. Um, and crafts have very concrete things. You know, talk about naval aviation, the manuals that drive naval aviation that I learned how to do, uh, those things, it's called the NATOPS and ATOPS, which is, you say it's written in blood. Because the criticality, the errors were, we're losing airplanes and we're losing life when we, when we err, when we mess something up. So the uh, need to, to get it right, to figure out what process is safe, what process is repeatable, what process is trainable, uh, you know, that all happened in you know, the first 100 years of uh, building that craft, really the first 50 years of building out the craft of naval aviation. Um, so we don't have that criticality, for one, in cybersecurity operations. We also don't have that much time. We haven't been 50 years into it. And so um, that's one critical problem. The, I study what I call seven unstable conversations in cybersecurity, the craft, the things that we need to s communicate with each other. You know, data is the building block for a conversation. Okay. But to have a conversation, you need to understand the audience. You need to understand the intent and what the, what the outcome is. Um, and But the, the first the first part of it is establishing a unit of work. You know, as uh, guys like you and I that have occasionally carried a quota, we know yeah. you work off a unit called an opportunity. You know, how many That's opportunities right. you have, uh, what's the size, what's the deal size, what's the likelihood, is it a commit? There are all these characteristics around that unit of work. You know, yesterday I was in uh, downtown Chicago. 
I took an Uber down there. That whole organization runs off of a unit called a trip. And I get to have a meal. That unit is a, is a ticket or a table inside of restaurants. And what you're able to do on that unit is, do, uh, is, is to perform business planning. How many people do I need to do per unit? What, how, much, how much quota can a sales guy carry? How many trips can an Uber driver make? How many miles can they, uh, how much money are they gonna make on that? And same thing for uh, servers in the restaurant industry and virtually any other mature craft. In aviation, I had a maintenance action form, right? There was something if you're scheduled or unscheduled maintenance, that was a unit of work. There, was, there were uh, things I had to do to complete it. There were things I could not do. Uh, and there was process and documentation that went around that unit of work. And the fundamental challenge that I had when I was spinning up the network security group, I had, you know, seven sailors working for me. We had, you know, budget and all these things, but I, uh, I couldn't figure out what the unit was. When, what is the work? And uh, so I spent a lot of time just trying to figure out because the unit is it's very important you get it right because the trip makes sense to everybody in Uber, right? The, That's right. The meal makes sense to everybody at the restaurant and the opportunity makes sense to everybody uh, in, the, uh, in the sales organization, even beyond that to the executives. And so when you're talking about the unit of work in cybersecurity, what's the right unit? And the thing that I realized later on, much later on, was it has to be in the context of a crime that someone is trying to steal our uh, patient records or someone is trying to extort money via ransomware. Um, so there's, and those words don't just make sense to cybersecurity people. They make sense to every board member, whether they're a CISSP or not. Um, but the challenge, well, there's this pivot that happened and I wish I could make it like a movie out of it. <laughs> when, I was, when I was spinning up the network security group, it was the reason I was there and the funding didn't come out of IT, it came out of, national security, security reasons. And so I was, the cybersecurity group was a security group that focused on cyber. My boss, my department head was the director of security for the base. So my division uh, peers were not the server people and the IT people. It was the chief of police. <laughs> it was the intel officer. And so, you know, we had, we carried sidearms in the cybersecurity group, uh, network security wow. group at the National Graduate School, um, because it was security. And our outcome was someone is trying to harm us. We need to stop them. We need to, to, to deter them. And, and one make one way or another, whether it's handcuffs and prosecution or, you know, something more military. Um, but. But that one, but I also had the meetings. I go from those meetings, we're talking about adversaries and crimes, to IT meetings with my peers, you know, uh, interdepartmentally, where we're talking about patches and firewall blocks and packets and things that make no sense. And I realized in the beginning, I was trying to say that the conversation, the same data that I had, I used in one way in security, and then I used another way in IT. Uh, but when I'm talking to the Admiral, it was always a security language he understood. It didn't make sense for me to run it through an IT filter and then try to reinterpret it back into business, which is something innately um, understandable and comprehensible about security when we talk about it as crime instead of talking about it as um, risk management alone. So uh, when you're presenting to the Admiral, uh, Admiral I'm sorry, <laughs> um, the unit that you're talking about is the number of crimes prevented or intrusions prevented. Was that uh, a measure that is, was that the unit? It, yes, it's the number of, so when we talk about crime, you have, uh, you know, civilian crime. You also have, in, the, in that case, there was also national security issues. So a nation operating against our nation. Um, and then you also had, uh, policy violation. Someone, one of the students or faculty were doing something that was in violation of the command's policy. And that, that, those are mostly true across every organization. Someone's trying to commit a crime, steal data, disrupt service, break our services, uh, extort money. They're doing a crime that lines up to, um, to some code, U.S. code or some legal code, right? That's gonna, that can be prosecuted. Um, and that was a unit. How many, how many attempts did we have? How many attempts did we stop? Who are, what's the nature of the adversary trying to do these things? Um, what can we do to further deter them uh, from doing this? What can we do to prevent? That's the risk part, right? How can we shore, shore up our defenses so that uh, they're less likely to be successful? 
But the, the result, you think about law enforcement, police officers don't normally get to stop crimes. No, um, they're the, reactive after the fact. Right. They bring a lot of cybers like that, too. Well, that, so that's a challenge. When I talk about the seven conversations, the main thing, the outcome that we should be driving towards in cybersecurity is increasing deterrence for criminals. And there's a number of reasons we challenges uh, that we've had historically that are starting to get better. If you look at the 2020 FBI cybercrime report, the interaction, especially in the financial sector with FBI, has gotten so much better. They're sharing information with law enforcement. They figured out how to package. They're not looking at logs as data. They're looking at logs as evidence. And so they're collecting it and packaging it in a way so they can produce an affidavit uh, to FBI. And FBI recovered something, maybe it's a stat wrong, but something north of 70% of, uh, of wire fraud they recovered. You know, so this idea that really? international, yeah, that was, you pull up a crime report, it's, it's fascinating. And it's getting better every year because the financial sector has figured out the code of silence <laughs> doesn't lead to a safer world. Uh, but in, so the wire crimes are starting to go down. And so you're starting to see this move to cryptocurrencies, you know, um, on the payouts of ransoms of different sorts um, that are where the reporting's not happening, the bank's not involved. So they're not able to be a good citizen. But in virtually every other vertical, we're not calling the police. We're not calling each other. We're not being good citizens because we, frankly, we don't know how to yet. I think it's a major well, driver. A lot of groups have set up these ISACs, right? Mm -hmm. yep. Which are intended as an information sharing warehouse. But you're saying that that's, that's certainly not enough. I know, uh, Across the industry, we could probably even uh, uh, in our group of MSSP MDR firms, we could probably do a much better job of sharing and communicating with our colleagues in friendly coopetition. Right? That's true. That's that true. Right. As good citizens, you know, you're not there's no you us getting the bad guys off the streets. Very important. And the other leg of this is starting to become more and more important is the uh, cybersecurity insurance uh, underwriters. And the adjusters, because they're realizing those here in Chicago, we had the CNA breach last month, massive. Yep. We don't know the whole impact of what that's going to end up doing yet, but potentially the attackers could have, whether they did or not, I don't know, uh, could have gotten a list of who's insured for how much. So now you have a list of targets uh, that and how much their payout could be. McDonald's is insured for whatever, 10 million or whatever their insurance is. And now the attackers have a list, a menu of tasty morsels uh, to go after. And it's important for each organization to protect each other. It used to be you only had, you didn't have to outrun the bear. You just had to outrun the slowest runner. Right. That, and, but now it's not true if the bear is getting a taste for uh, the more expensive, uh, better tasting meat, right? Yeah, they're, they're going to skip the slowest guy and say, that dude tastes better. Let's go right. after that. And so the way that works is you have to you have the the collaborative you know market sharings are important uh, vendors like like me we we have to find ways of sharing information without bankrupting ourselves right there's proprietary information that we want to protect but you know one of the things uh, our community does is you know if we have you know twenty customers that are or deployments that are using something like uh, Palo Alto and Palo Alto is picking up uh, a, a given set of detections and that gets that gets anonymously submitted up to our cloud service then the guys that are maybe using cisco asas that aren't currently detecting those iocs they are logging that the connections are happening and they match against that threat feed now the asas are able to benefit from the intelligence from palo alto because the the mutual customers are sharing that intelligence that uh, we're detecting these iocs from these detection methods and, you know, one of the things we learned in working with law enforcement is dealing with anonymous tips. So with the ISACs and, and other uh, data sharing is sometimes too many tips is too much work. Um, how do you vet the quality of, um, of intelligence, threat intelligence? And so one of the ways that you do that in physical law enforcement, if you have a tip line, is through corroboration that if you have multiple sources reporting the same thing, and especially if there are multiple types of sources, if it's you know coming in from a video camera and it's a human actor um, and there's a credit card charge, all those things provide corroboration of a fact. 
and it makes each one of them stronger. And so when you have, you know, CrowdStrike detecting stuff and then boom, now it's being hit by carbon black and, you know, the corroboration of the detection methodologies, plus you have the corroboration of the submitting organizations give you a confidence level that it is a legitimate real tip that should be taken seriously and you should be on, on the lookout for. Um, and that it's, it's more challenging. You know, we, we've been working around that. Also the part of if that submission happens, there is a bit of a risk. If there's an audit trail, if it's not an anonymous submission, um, there's a potential for a subpoena to where if I said I have data on this attacker, law enforcement may be investigating them and come to me with a subpoena to say, give me all your information. Right. And, and in talking to my friends and, you know, federal and local law enforcement, the, I tell them, it's like, if you get rear-ended, if I get rear-ended in my car and I call the police and you show up and take a, take a statement, um, and I give you the affidavit, you don't follow me home and go through all of my stuff. That's, that's too much risk, but that's what, that's what we're having to do. And it's not that law enforcement's overstepping. It's that the organizations aren't collecting data with the outcome in mind of handing an affidavit of evidence over to law enforcement. So law enforcement has to come in and go through all the records. It's sort of like uh, doing a tax return when all you have is, you know, shoe boxes full of receipts. <laughs> so it's very exhausting for law enforcement, but you never know what law enforcement is going to pull out of that shoe box. Um, that's, that's a really good analogy, but you know, going into, um, th this is about what we're seeing as threats in, in across our monitored platforms. So one place that I don't see any information sharing is what the red teams are doing. So when we, when we look at the, our whole wonderful pyramid of pain, the very tip of that is not the domain of any vendor, right? When you get into unknown unknowns, that is the domain of human consciousness. Human beings working on a hunch, trying to piece a jigsaw puzzle together, say, you know what, this might be a new thing. We don't really see much of that unless we've gone to Black Hat or we've gone to some other conference and we have our own private networks of people that we're constantly collaborating with, but there's really no good means of uh, talking to those folks who are really digging through the logs, if you will, and trying to correlate things that machines are not capable of doing. Yeah, there is there is a good bit of hunting involved. And, and the, the couple of things that work really well in catching the unknown unknowns are, you know, honeypots are great things, potentially any kind of deception technology inside of a network works great. If things start talking to a box, it's not supposed to be there. Yeah, there, it's very, there's not a false, you know, there's not a false positive scenario here. <laughs> someone's doing something they shouldn't be doing. And so allowing them to dig into that is a great tripwire. Um, and there, there's several good technologies out in the market uh, that, you know, TrapX and a few other that are out there doing good commercial support on these uh, deception technologies. But, you know, honeypots are very powerful, whether they're outside or inside and just figuring out something's wrong. And then the investigative mindset really is about following the evidence um, that, you have a trigger, you have, an, you have something that happens. Someone, and same thing in law enforcement, someone calls and says, there's a problem. I see something suspicious. There's an investigative process of going through, through that. This starts with developing a theory. You know, uh, Detective Bill Rich is a, an advisor of ours and a really sharp guy out of LAPD. And uh, the way, he, but he's not a cyber guy. He's, he was, he's been a, a homicide detective for years. But uh, when I was explaining to him sort of how we do investigations, as cybersecurity, he, he was indignant. <laughs> he says, let me tell you this. Let me say I drive to a house and there's 20 bullets in the house and 20 shell casings on the ground. Um, what I do is I draw a big circle in my mind around this, this scene and I put a theory towards it. Is this a bank robbery? Well, no, probably not a bank robbery. There's no bank. That doesn't fit the theory. Uh, it's not a carjacking. There's no car. Oh, you know, this could be a drive-by shooting. So you sort of go through these theories of what the evidence could fit into. And he says, but what we do and what we tend to do in cybersecurity operations is we'll pick up the shell casing. We might even assign 40 guys, one guy to each shell casing, one guy to each bullet. And he's just thinking through what this thing could mean. And so you're starting sort of at this micro level, uh, trying to 
find a way to a theory. But in law enforcement, you start with a theory. And then as you follow the evidence, the evidence is either going to prove a theory, the more evidence you're able to feed into the model, or it's going to disprove it. And so Which is hypothesis-based threat hunting. I mean, that's that's exactly right. You you have the model, and the more evidence you feed into it, it's going to, or it's like he's like to say, if you if I have the murder weapon, I have the murder on tape, I have the confession, I have all these things. It's an open and shut case. I have all the evidence, so there's no there's no room for uh, ambiguity. Um, but but yeah, the trip the, the the signals to start an investigation are very important. Um, whether that's deception technology. Um, there was one other I was going to throw into that mix, but maybe we'll come back to me later. Um, and um, the, the other thing is getting away from triage because of the volumetric nature of signals that we have. Um, because unlike physical law enforcement, I can't come back and set up detection after the crime happens. You know, if, if, you know, my desk right. has fingerprints on it, even though I haven't configured a fingerprint uh, processing. I, I can do that later. But in digital, you have to have all of the collection and processing set up before the event occurs, which means we're processing a lot of data. And a lot of organizations I work with, it's terabytes or up to petabytes a day of signals that are coming in. And so what we've had to do as a craft is triage which signals are the important ones. And, it's, and it does sort of a lot of the, the hunting comes down to intuition because we can't possibly process all of it. I can't do a million anything in a day. And so you can't go through that many signals. So because we're triaging, we're missing things. And a healthy craft doesn't triage, um, not, not in perpetuity. Um, you do have triage during crises, but, you know, at some point, the broken arm has to get fixed. You know, you can't always, uh, can't always stand triage. Um, but it is about processing every signal in the context of, of every theory. And computers can do that. And uh, then, again, you don't always have all the evidence, so that's where humans get involved. And sometimes humans have to go and, you know, tase somebody. <laughs> Maybe I probably can't get away with that, but, you know, interrogate <laughs> someone. Right. Ask, ask the questions, do the digital forensics on the machines. But it is a the, – the process of detecting the, the net new uh, – the O'Day the stuff, right, that's always going to be a challenge. And really, oh, whitelisting is what I was going to go through. Process whitelisting, tra traffic whitelisting, zero trust are, are things that create a very small space for an, uh, a zero-day type of exploit to get through. Um, and even when we're working with uh, red teams uh, or uh, automating, uh, automated uh, attack simulation type of uh, tools, um, it's important for the uh the blue team for the defenders the responders to understand where they are and to be able to separate synthesize what i call synthesize attacks from actual attacks uh, because there's different response actions to those um but yeah it, it is it, it is a challenge but i think mostly the, the, the talk about the seven unstable conversations the first one is investigators can't understand process or, or process uh the data coming from their tool sets they can't process all the evidence and it's a, a fundamental uh, challenge that we've been working on. You know, when I first started doing security operations, the, the unit was the row. It was the alert that would come in, the firewall block. The, and so you just have these things flowing so fast past you, you can't even read them, much less comprehend them. You know, and then as an industry, we started to pivot to computer or asset base aggregation, right? Where we take, yeah. here are all the alarms that are on this machine. Here's the, here's the most alarming machine, right? And so you would focus on the machine. And then we moved off as an industry into a, a new layer of, of uh, aggregation in uh, the UBA stuff, where we'd say, let's establish some graph relationships between these things. What credential right. is attached to these hosts that are attached to these alarms and start building that out. And, you know, I liked some of the work that uh, Chronicle does at Google on IOC aggregation to where uh, the relationships between known IOCs, because on the IOC, you can put intent. Who is, you know, who do we think or who do we know in some cases is yep. the creator of this thing? And then you can build a relationship because now you have a crime because you know this evidence is associated with this human. And, you know, these relationships between these entities exist. And then a lot of the research I did is around 
uh, in the earliest, uh, the, the first area of research we did was around modus operandi aggregation, that instead of tracking the signal, you update every relationship between everything, every computer to computer connection, every computer to user session, every file presence, all of those graph edges and nodes, as evidence comes in, it's telling you more and more about every one of those relationships. And then you're tracking the characteristics of those relationships. And if the, if that relationship looks like it's potentially reconnaissance, reconnaissance fits into a kill chain with several kill chains. One might be right. uh, data theft, right? Or um, it could be a number of things, but you basically have these open theories. And as more evidence and more relationships start connecting together across that modus operandi, uh, one theory becomes more and more clear, uh, more and more likely, and the other theories become less and less likely until they're disqualified in the same way that you investigate uh, until you investigate uh, crime. But in that way, it gets us out of triage because that was the thing that drove me crazy. And it, working with folks over the last 20 years, the most heartbreaking thing is to work with um, – with teams that are doing their best to look somebody in the face that busted yep. their rear end from sun up to sun down and didn't get 1% of their work done. And then the next day it's going to start over again. That's a heartbreaking um, job to be in. And so it's, uh, I tell them, you know, if you can only get 1% of your work done, just quit and go to the bar and drink all day. Um, so <laughs> you might have a better outcome. <laughs> yeah, we, we shall enjoy it more. Yeah. So you mentioned there's seven conversations. We've talked about one. Can you summarize what the other? Yeah. So the second conversation. Yeah. So the, the first conversation, the solution, to the first conversation is building a unit of work that delivers clarity yep. um, for the investigator. So the investigator can comprehend their work. Second one is the managers of investigators need to know, need to be able to put, uh, need to be able to manage them, manage the investigators. Do I have enough people? The people have the right tools. How many people should I have? Uh, what do my, how do I professionally develop my investigators? And if you can't look at the work of each individual contributor into what they're contributing, what's the quality of their work, you can't audit it. You can't help them grow. You can't, you can't correct them so that they see their blind spots. You don't know what training to send them to. It's very difficult for the managers to manage their people. Uh, the third problem is one we're all too familiar with is the security practice cannot um, properly communicate with a broader business that the, they think we're a bunch of nerds doing, you know, oh, stuff yeah, here. Yeah. And a lot so of missed dialogue. Part right. of the reason is a lot of times CISOs don't end up at the big boy table. That's a whole, whole conversation on that. It's true. And sometimes there's not even a CISO, right? And that's another, that's another part of the problem, but it does put a lot of weight on the CISO to be an immaculate storyteller. Um, and the, one of the major areas of research we did was just like trying to get the cybersecurity practice into gap or general accounting principles, um, like QuickBooks, how, how many things are happening? How much is it costing us? If we bring a tool in, how much money does it save us? Is this tool configured correctly? Are we maximizing the value? If we, if we throw X amount of money at it, what's the ROI and to be able to do those things, um, enable, uh, security practices to have sustainable conversations, you know, working with one of the universities here, uh, one of our first times going through this cycle, the uh, CISO went to uh, trustees and said, Hey, I want to do uh, a proof of concept on this email protection platform. I want to take 10% of the, the, of the users, the alumni, faculty, staff, uh, students, I put them in this use case. We're going to see how much more we can see. So how does it impact our visibility and handling risk? But also, how much labor would we need to put, would it remove by stopping things from ever happening or what we call a disrupted incident or a disrupted crime, right? Someone tried to fish us, but the, the tool stopped it. And so the findings were remarkable. It was, it was something in the realm of like half a million dollars in labor would be needed if those policies weren't put in place. And so fortunately, the tool was less than that, half a million a month, by the way, half a million dollars a month, they would have to staff people just to deal with the problems that that university was facing. And so being able to go to the board and say, I need you give me X, I'll, re, I'll give you back 10X, and we're going to reduce risk as a promise ahead of a procurement exercise. And then the procurement exercise happens and to be able to go back and say, okay, yep, I, I anticipated a 10X return, we're getting 12X back. 
um, that's allows for what I call sustainable conversation where it's not trying to scare the board one more time or trying to get them to believe in you one more time or where it just feels like right. this unhealing wound to where it is boss can I save you some money and make things safer uh, to make that promise and approve it those are things that are that makes for a good executive and this CISOs like that better so that's the third one fourth one we already talked about a little bit that organizations I'm sorry it's not the fourth one fourth one is uh, security vendors lie I'm a security vendor I lie we go to conferences to learn how to lie that's also all lies but um, the you know, uh, we actually had a paper lies more lies and damn lies that's <laughs> that we put out there. Well, it's just, and it's not that we mean to necessarily, but we, we, I get, we get so deep into our own stuff. It's not an intentional lie, but we think our thing can do things that it can't necessarily do given the context. Right. I'm going to circle back to that. Cause that's well, a whole nother topic. So th that's, that's number four. Uh, it's number four. Right. And it's just basically can't, if, if a vendor or a provider promises you they're going to deliver something, you need to be able to like, if you come in and hire someone to do professional services to, to tune your firewalls, did it, did it actually do anything? How do you know? The only thing we currently have is the word of the person that did the work. And so to be able to see, you should see a reduction in false positives. You should see a reduction. You should, you should start seeing things happening in your securities operations center. When you start making changes, you should, if you're initiating a tuning project without having that end in mind, then, then you're going to get whatever you deserve. Right. That's and, my, and that's true. You have to have some way of metering that. And that can yeah. be a very challenging piece. Uh, the fifth one is, as we said, organizations are challenged in sharing information with each other efficiently. Uh, okay. reducing the risk to tell someone, Hey, I'm getting being attacked by these IOCs. You should look out for these IOCs. It creates risk for them to admit that. Uh, and it creates work. And so reducing that the sixth one is law. We talked about this one also law enforcement and organizations don't share information. And the seventh one is based on that, that law enforcement lacks the evidence to adequately prosecute, uh, criminals because it's all inside of our networks. <laughs> it's not, it's not at, uh, available to law enforcement. And so those are the seven that we, we study, you know, been studying over the last six years and, you know, doing, you know, 4,200 experiments at this point, uh, to learn what we've learned. And, um, they're challenging things and they're, they're things that are easy to say and they're all, and for us, fortunately, we have to solve for any one of them. So anything that we build can't break the other <laughs> one of the other right. six conversations. Uh, which has been helpful for us. Um, but yeah, those are the, those are the seven. So uh, are any of these uh, are, are companies, are they doing them well or are they generally lacking across the seven? What as a, problem? as a craft. Yeah. We, we had, it's a, it's a systemic problem and it's uh, okay. There's yeah, it's, it's more art than it is craft right now that it should be, this should be a flow chart instead of, chicken bones and, uh, <laughs> and great storytelling. I'll tell you what, Charles, I mean, I, I can't believe how quickly time has flown here. We, and we've, uh, out of 10 questions, we've only gotten to three. So, so, uh, one thing I, w I do want to do, uh, I know your time is limited. I want to understand a little bit about Witfu and how Witfu came into existence and what exactly are you guys all about? Yeah, so the the product we pedal is a uh, is a big data sim essentially. So it's, uh, it's send all your data in. We process all the data. We create units of work. Uh, there's SOAR playbooks, all of those things for orchestrating the work, and then we use those units of work to create reporting. Uh, so things on uh, is there gap overlap between my tools and how we're detecting and responding to things? Should I should I tune a tool? Am I maximize the value? Do I have false positives? Do I have a tool that's set to detect only to uh, detect and block? And we also do um, automated compliance checking. So against the 850 and this 853, how many controls you, are we detecting from your telemetry that are in place? So um, a lot of our research is around natural language processing and comprehending every message. So uh, a message comes in our team that we've never seen before. We don't know what it is. That opens up a ticket. Our research team goes out, reaches out to the vendors, understands the etymology of that message, and we build what we call a semantic frame. And uh, that's just explaining how it works. And then once we understand what's in the message, why it was sent, what we're supposed to do with it, how does it map to frameworks like Sticks or the MITRE attack continuum, then we're able to stitch that together into these uh, modus operandi investigations. 
Um, we also work a lot with MSSPs. So we have um, a federated mode, multi-tenant mode, several multi-tenant modes in, in that space. Um, and we work with sharing that information. If we need to working right now on a report to police button. So you can send that affidavit of attack uh, in a way that, that makes sense uh, to law enforcement. Uh, so that's our big driver this year is uh, bridging through that. But yeah, it's a way of us uh, making sense of all the data, trying to stabilize those seven conversations, uh, providing the, tele- or the tools for that anyway, uh, to give folks opportunity. And like to say, I did, we don't write great journalism. The heroes out in the field are doing all the real work. We're just give them the equipment, give them the gear to do the good stuff. How did the name come about? So wit is keenness of mind. Like you're really, you're really witty. You're a smart guy. You've got intelligence. And that really, that part comes from what we're doing is normalizing and collecting the things we already know. You know, there's this big move to do AI and machine learning and uh, all these trick plays that we're going to do. And I realize most of the stuff we need to do, we already know. You know, there's not, there are, there is always stuff to learn. There's always new ways to look at things and do anomaly detection and, and those sort of trick plays. But what we currently have in the, in the cybersecurity community is a ton of knowledge. We just are, we needed a way to collect it and operationalize it. And foo is just uh, hacker slang from my old days on uh, skill. How's your podcast foo? How's your Python foo? And so it's putting that, that knowledge to work. So it's, it's really building this little army to come in as, as we learn stuff at one organization that gets ported out through what we call the Whitfu libraries, where we collect all this um, uh, global intelligence, ways of looking at data, ways of visualizing it. And we make that available to the whole community and we curate that. So it's just really, so is there a charge for that to get access to it? Uh, yeah, so we do. We that's how I eat. Um, so, <laughs> well, you uh, gotta eat. I can't blame you for that. But yeah, there. But there, it's all. If you go to witfoo.com, we are pretty transparent. The the price. We only have one SKU, and it's all. It's basically all based on knowledge workers or employees in the organization. We have managed security service providers that will host it. They'll provide services around it as well. Uh, but we do sell the software. Includes all of the all of the sharing, all of the intelligence. We tr- we keep it turnkey spin it up scalable as many nodes as you need as you need to meet your requirements um but and just let us take care of it it's the i had a dear friend of mine uh, tk keenini he's at cisco he's cisco's uh, cto over security he said the first time we went to rsa was like going to a transportation conference where uh, all the attendees wanted to buy cars but all the vendors were selling car parts and so really wanted to build something that had the windshield wipers and everything. We'd have to bring your own carburetor and try to put it all together. So um, it's one of our driving principles there. Keep the pricing simple, keep the deployment where you can deploy it, spin it up. You know, we're uh, doing pretty well in, in that regard. Are there any organizations, events, things that you'd like to plug that our listeners should be aware of where you'll be uh, appearing, books coming out or papers you'll be presenting things so there's a couple of things there is a there's a i'm launching a project called log fiber l-o-g-f-i-b-b-e-r so logfiber.com or org it's a it's an open source uh, under apache 2 uh, project um we're releasing the code that the repo will go public at black hat um oh. here in the summer but yeah. it's essentially a, a kit for doing training or red team stuff where you, you write up all these lies <laughs> that you want your tools like Whitfoot Precinct or, you know, Splunk or whatever you're using to believe. And then you configure these fake devices. Like I have a Palo Alto at this address and I have a, uh, you know, I'm using CrowdStrike Falcon and you write up all these devices that you want to emulate. And so based on the natural language processing we've done with semantic frames, where you have this library of what I call reframes that take these generalized messages and turn them into proprietary messages. So how would an ASA say this thing happened? And so we're launching an education initiative later this month uh, where this tool gets a part of it to where educators can go and say, okay, here's what Edward Snowden did in that, uh, in the booze, uh, Alan, uh, that old uh, NSA breach, prison breach. Uh, this is what it would look like in our tools. This is what the messages would look like if, if they were using you know, the tool set, a Cisco stack, or this is what it looked like if it was best of breed, or this is what it looked like with CrowdStrike versus, so you can generate the metrics to do the train against. 
and also really powerful uh, thing for messing up uh, <laughs> blue teams. It's a powerful team for uh, for red teams just to go in there and completely gum up uh, responsibilities by generating a ton of lies. So that's coming out. The, the website is up, and you can sign up for um, access to that. I'm uh, I am speaking at uh, real life <laughs> for the first time. Wow. No uh, Zoom, huh? No Zoom. I'm so excited. So I'll be at uh, B-Sides, uh, Northern Virginia. That's on uh, the first weekend of June. So, I'm, And that talks on uh, breaking uh, breaking uh, network behavioral anomaly detection, breaking UBA, breaking SIM. It's actually called Breaking NBAD, which I, of course, ripped off from a great TV show. Um, but, that, but that talk, I'm going through sort of the same thing. How do you poison data? How do you trick um, blue teams into making bad decisions in response and also how do you how, as a blue teamer how do you prevent against those kind of data poisoning pieces so that'll be my next uh, my next talk there we'll put the links to the show uh, in the show notes to both the uh, b-sides and, and to your new yeah <laughs> project we will absolutely put those in um that that's fantastic and i guess in in parting of all the places that you've dove for any budding divers out there, is there a place you would tell a beginning diver to go? Oh, so my most relaxing place to go is Cosmo, Mexico. It's also a straight shot south of me here in Chicago. But they have these wonderful, easy drift dives. They have beautiful, so you can go down to 30, 60 feet, and you have uh, currents just gently taking you along beautiful parts of the reef and seeing all kinds of uh, uh great sea life in warm water <laughs> so you're oh. not freezing um but yeah absolutely cosmel is my favorite place to go just to relax it's not necessarily the most exciting diving but the water's clear the people are amazing um and it's a very easy dive i like to uh, dive with uh, for with a uh, scuba do is the name of the dive shop i'm going to plug them because i love them so okay. much but they're absolutely. a fant fantastic uh fantastic dive crew down there and taking care of taking care of us that that's uh that's great hey and you can have a drink with an umbrella in it as soon as you're out of the water so that's the triangle i do room <laughs> dive pier bar it's the whole that's basically how i vacation for as long as i can get away with it well charles thank you so much for joining us uh this has been an enlightening conversation i i appreciate you uh being on the show and we look forward to having you back sometime Thanks very much. It was a great pleasure for me. I really appreciate the time.